Good morning, Crossroads. How you doing? Great, great, great. Well, welcome. Welcome to Crossroads Bible Church. If you are new here, how many of you guys, uh, just out of curiosity, I always wonder this on Sunday mornings, how many of you guys are new? When I say new, like this is your first time, or maybe you've been here three, four times. How many of you guys are new? So like, okay, raise your hands high. Uh, here, here's the deal about Crossroads is um, we're not all that great at um, production. You may have noticed that if you've been here. Uh, and so it's kind of, you might get a little bit lost. So those of you that weren't raising your hands, you're the welcoming committee, okay? Can you help us with that? Because it can be kind of intimidating to come here and be in this sea of people and like who's who. And so if you didn't just raise your hand, you are officially on the Crossroads Welcoming Committee. And I want to ask you to go find somebody you don't know and say hi to them after and invite them to dinner afterwards. Cool? Awesome. Thank you. My name is Ryan. I'm, the, uh, I'm a guy here, part of this church. I'm not the pastor, but they let me preach here sometimes, so that's fun for me. We, uh, if you've been here for a while, you know that we have been in the book of Luke. And great news, today we're finishing up Luke. Today we are finishing up our 83-week series on Luke. No, I'm not joking. I'm, I'm not actually joking about that. We started this series. I did some research. September 7, 2014. 80. Okay, so some churches, you know, a lot of churches do series, you know, three-part series, six-week series. Some may venture into a 12-week series. No, we do 83-week series here at Crossroads Bible Church. So I don't know what's next. It'll be fun, though. I'm sure. I love it. I love being a part of a church that is committed to the Word of God. That's what I love. I love being a part of a church that takes this book seriously and that takes the time to explore the evidence and preach the truth in this book. And uh, I love being a part of a church that doesn't just cater to the, the latest thought and tickle itching ears as the Bible says, but we're just committed to the Word of God and letting the Holy Spirit reveal truth to us through that. And so, welcome to Crossroads Bible Church. That's what we're about here. So, like I said, we are finishing up Luke this morning, and I want to do a brief review just to orient ourselves to what we're going to talk about today. If you have been following this series, which I mean, there's some of you guys that we've been in this series for so long. You may have left this church, gone to another church, got sick of that church, and now you're back already. Like, that's how long we've been in this series. So if you are familiar with the book of Luke, maybe you're not. Maybe I need to orient you that, to that a little bit. The book of Luke is a book in this, uh, it's, a, it's a section of this book that we call the Bible. It's one of four books that we call Gospels. It's about that far in your Bible toward the end. Gospel means good news, and Luke is one of the four books in the Bible that tells us the story about Jesus. It's written, we believe, by this man named Luke, and Luke writes to this man named Theophilus. You read this in Luke chapter 1, and 
What is Luke's purpose in writing to Theophilus? Well, he tells us, he says, he's writing to write an orderly account so that you may know with certainty, hold on to that word, with certainty, the things that you have been taught. So that's, the, that's Luke's priority in writing this book, is that we would have an orderly account so that we might know with certainty the things that have been taught. Now, what are the things that have been taught that Luke is referring to here? Well, he's referring to the things that have been taught about Jesus, about who Jesus is and what he did. So Luke is writing so that we may know with certainty who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And Luke begins his gospel with the most detailed account that we have of Jesus' birth. Only two of the gospels, interestingly, contain any information about Jesus' birth. And Luke gives us the most detailed account. And you find a couple of interesting things when you go into Luke's account of Jesus' birth. Luke does some interesting things that really carry through his gospel. He, he highlights... Uh, these events of angels coming and appearing to Mary and appearing to shepherds and announcing the birth of what the, the angel says to Mary is going to be the Son of God, the one that's going to sit on the throne of David, who's going to have this eternal kingdom, all direct references to Old Testament prophets, messianic messages from the Old Testament. So essentially, we've got this picture of this divine Messiah who's going to come and rescue God's people. Now, we also have this interesting piece that Luke uh, includes. He includes some of these details like he's born of uh, a a woman, uh, and not only any woman, a single woman, uh, a young woman who's not married, and and, and she's... uh, so looked down upon because of her singleness uh, and being pregnant while being signal, single, that she's not even welcomed in her own hometown, and she has to, at the time of her birth, find shelter uh, out in a stable and give birth to Jesus in a manger. So we, so we have this, in, in Luke's gospel, we've got this, this kind of dynamic going on with Luke highlighting the divinity, the royalty of Jesus, as well as the humility and the humanness of Jesus, and never uh, compromising either of them, but highlighting both of them in a very significant way. So this is what we get at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Then he continues on in Luke chapter 4, and right in about the middle of that, we get a hint at Jesus' mission and Jesus' purpose. What is Jesus going to be doing here on earth? And Jesus... Uh, by his own admission, he goes into a synagogue and he reads from the scroll and the prophet Isaiah and he introduces what he's going to be all about. He tells us what his mission is going to be and this is going to be his mission. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Luke 4 verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As if to say, this is what my kingdom is going to be all about. It's going to be all about proclaiming good news to poor, releasing of captives, 
recovery of sight, the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. That's what I'm going to be all about. And what we see is you follow Luke through, the gospel, through his gospel. Jesus now enacts this mission throughout the rest of the gospel. And what we find is what Jesus refers to here with the poor and the prisoner and the blind and the oppressed what we find as the gospel, this, as Luke's story goes on, is he's not referring only to this physical poverty and this physical blindness and physical bondage, but what we find is that Jesus came to release the prisoners from the ultimate bondage, the ultimate slavery, the ultimate captivity, and that's the captivity to our sin and our rebellion, and that's what he came to release us from. But... We also cannot escape the fact that all commentators agree, if you study the the book of Luke, that Luke puts a special emphasis on the material, the materially and the socially poor and oppressed and marginalized. You can't escape this in Luke's gospel. As a matter of fact, when you look right after Jesus says this is what he's going to be all about, the very next thing he does is he's faced with uh, somebody who is uh, demon-possessed, and then it says he goes out and he heals the sick, uh, and then he calls his first disciples who are just fishermen, and then he puts his hand on a leper, uh, and then he's surrounded by paralytics, and then he calls Levi, who uh, would have been a social outcast in Jesus' day. And so what you find is you can't escape this piece of Jesus' ministry that there's this significant emphasis on the materially and the socially poor and oppressed and marginalized uh, and outcast. So this is, this is what Luke says in the beginning to Theophilus. This is what we may know with certainty. And we know at the end that we just celebrated last week was resurrection, right? This whole story culminates, our Christian faith culminates in Luke chapter 23 and 24 with Jesus on a cross, but that cross can't hold him down. He rises again, and he lives forever, and now he's seated at the right hand of God waiting to come back to earth. This is the the culmination of the story, right? That's what we celebrate last week, which makes this week kind of an interesting week, right? This is a kind of an interesting week in the church calendar because last week— We even have this series of Lent leading up to preparation for the the death of Jesus, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and there's a big celebration. One of my favorite holidays, uh, it's the pinnacle of our Christian faith, and then we have the week after Easter, which is spring break. Right? It's like, what? This is kind of a weird time in the church calendar. So what do we do with this time in the church calendar? What I love uh, about the Gospels, and especially Luke's Gospel, is although the, the resurrection, the, the, the cross and the resurrection are the pinnacle of the story, it's not the end of the story. Does that, does that make sense? Have you ever thought about that for a second? That the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection are the pinnacle of but not the end. And I want to look at what about after the resurrection? 
What does that mean for us today? And I think Luke gives us some significant indication of what that means for us today. So I want to read this morning, starting in Luke chapter 24. We're going to read verse 36 through the end. Let me pray for us, and then we'll stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus, thank you for today. God, this day that you have created and placed us here on earth and even in this space this morning, we believe that this is sacred space, not because of the location, not because of the day, but because you are here, because your presence is with us, that we're in sacred space, and uh, we want to hear from you this morning. So I pray this morning for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, that we might know you better, and that by knowing you better, that we might know what it is that you have called us to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand. Luke 24. I'm going to start in verse 36. It says, while they were still talking about this. Now let's pause there for a second. What are they talking about? If you were here last week, Rod preached about the, the, the two men that are on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. And he opens their, he, he, he teaches them about himself from Moses and the prophets from the Old Testament. Uh, and then they invite Jesus to eat with them. It says that they understand it was Jesus, and all of a sudden he disappears, which is kind of a weird thing. These two men then go from Emmaus, run back to Jerusalem, find the disciples, and tell the disciples what had just happened on the road to, Dema- uh, the road to Emmaus and this time they had with Jesus. This is the thing that they're talking about. Does that make sense? So while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking it was a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Go ahead and have a seat. So there's this, uh, what I find a very compelling and what I also find a very comforting piece that you'll find in all of the gospel accounts. 
you find it in some fashion. Each, each writer of their gospel nuances it in a different way. But you'll find that in each of the gospels, after the resurrection, when Jesus appears to his followers, that there's still a sense of doubt and confusion with the disciples. Have you guys ever noticed this? All of the gospel accounts record this. Matthew, it says, when is right before his, his final exhortation to his disciples, it said that they worshipped and yet some doubted. You'll read that in Matthew 28. And Mark's account of the gospel, the women go to the tomb and they find the tomb empty and an angel appears and explains. They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He's risen as he told you. Go back to Jerusalem. And it says that the women are afraid and confused and they don't know what to do with this news. Uh, we read here in, in Luke's gospel, uh, it says, Jesus says, why are you troubled and, and why do doubts rise in your mind? Uh, in, in John's gospel, you find the disciples, uh, after Jesus has already appeared to them two times, we find the disciples in a boat, uh, seemingly discouraged and, and confused and not certain of what's happened and what they're supposed to be doing. You find this in all of the gospels, this these doubts and these, this confusion that's going on with his followers. The other thing that I find very compelling is that never do you see Jesus condoning their doubt. What I mean by that is justifying it, saying it's okay, but neither do you see Jesus condemning them for their doubt. Isn't that interesting? Rather, what you see is that Jesus meets them right where they are, and he's patient and gracious with their doubts. And not only that, he's gracious and patient with their doubts, but he also helps them in their doubt. Have you guys noticed this in the Gospels? Jesus is patient with his disciples, gracious in their doubts, but he also helps them in their doubt. What do I mean by he helps them? What I mean is, well, we have the account here. He gives them verifiable evidence to help them in their doubts. Isn't that interesting? Because I think we live in this culture, and I think it's really strong, especially here in this West Michigan Christian culture, where we've got to have everything together, and we've got to have our beliefs right, and we've got to put on this good image, especially in church, and we're not allowed to doubt and, and, and if you doubt, that's a lack of faith. And, and, and I wonder, I, I don't know if you guys, I've experienced this. And I would dare guess that a lot of us in this room have experienced this. Where we're afraid to ask questions. We're afraid to be honest about doubts that we have. And I wonder, is that rooted in a misconception that we have about who God is? Because here's, here's what I think is that, because I grew up, I've grown up in West Michigan. I've, I know this culture and at least my experience, and I, I think this will probably ring true to many of you, is that this culture that we live in, I think we have a general understanding or belief about God that he is generally upset with us, generally disappointed with us, but tolerates us. I think that's kind of the general conception that we have of God is that he's this holy God, unapproachable, and because we have these doubts and these inconsistencies and these imperfections that he is mostly upset with us but tolerates us. 
And man, that's just not the Jesus that I see here in this picture. The Jesus that I see in this picture is, is patient and gracious and wants his disciples to believe and helps them in their unbelief and gives them verifiable evidence to his existence. And I want to submit to verifiable evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. See, I think we've maybe bought into this idea that we have to have this blind faith and never ask for proof of it. That, that this idea of God is this ethereal kind of concept without any true evidence. But scripture tells us there's evidence. Even just for the existence of God, scripture tells us there's evidence. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, he says that the very nature itself, creation itself, testifies about God's power and divine nature, such that no man is left with an excuse. Paul's writing, just look out. I mean, guys, look outside. It's snowing in April. How, who can say there's no God, right? Like, that doesn't, make, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, right? It's like, I was, uh, I was preaching here a couple of months ago, and uh, I got done preaching, and I was just hanging out up front here, and this young guy, college student, came up, and um, he said, hey, Ryan, that was a great speech. I love when people say that. It's a great speech. He said, uh, you know, that was really great. He said, but then he looked at me and said, I don't believe a word of it. I was like, okay, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be a fun conversation. Let's talk about that. It's one of my, I, those, some of my favorite conversations start out with that kind of honesty. He said, I don't believe a word about it. I said, really? What is it that you don't believe? He said, well, I used to be a Christian. I used to be a leader in my youth group. I used to be out in the streets on a regular basis praying for people and witnessing. And, and I said, okay, so what happened? He said, well, I'm in school now. I'm in college. And as I study, I, I'm just having a, a harder time believing in God. I said, interesting. Why is that? What are you studying? He said, well, I'm studying engineering. I said, interesting. You might be interested to know that I'm a licensed civil engineer. Hmm. Now you've seen his face. He's like, uh-oh. No. <clears throat> I didn't know you could be educated and believe in God. I said, so what is it about your studies that have led you to disbelief? And he said, well, I'm, I'm studying physics and thermodynamics, and I'm, I'm learning about the intricacies of creation, uh, not creation, of, of the world and the universe and how things work together. And as I'm learning about how the world works together, I'm having a harder time believing in God. And I think that's crazy. Why do we have such a distant, ethereal understanding of God that we can't believe when we learn about how the earth works that it leads us to disbelief? And so I, I said to him, I said, look at this building here. I said, look at the structure. Look at the the columns and the roof and the trusses and the wiring and the lighting. I said, do you believe that this building had a designer and a building and a builder? He's like, oh, of course. So why have you met this designer? Have you met the builder of this building? I said, well, no. Have you met anybody that's met anybody that has designed or built this building? He said, well, no. So, so how do you know that this building had a designer and a builder and didn't just come about by random chance? Well, he said, that's crazy. How could you believe, how could you look at this building and believe that this came about by, with, by random chance? He said, that's crazy. I said to him, you know, statistically, if you want to just talk about science, statistically, 
it is more likely that this building came about by random chance than, than the universe came about by random chance. Like it's simpler to believe that than when you understand how this creation works. Hmm. He said, I never thought about that. I said, that's your problem because you're not thinking. <laughs> that's the problem, right? Isn't that actually the problem? Is there's people out there that are offering these lofty ideas and we're just kind of like letting it creep into our minds with these doubts without actually thinking. But the, the evidence proves to, or the, the evidence leads us to at least the, the existence of a God. It doesn't, things don't make sense outside of that in my mind. So now what about Jesus himself? What about the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus? What's the verifiable evidence of that? Well, I want to say number one, it starts right here. This book, even, this book, when you look at it simply historically, it is proven time and time and again to be the most historic, historically accurate document in the world. Over and over and over, archaeological evidence is showing us more and more and more that this book is historically accurate. We're given less and less reason. I think the problem is we're not reading this book. I think, I think that's part of the problem with some Christians. They're not reading this book. And I want to tell you, man, I, uh, 18 years ago I started following Jesus and I started reading this book. And I didn't have anybody leading me through how to read. I just started reading it. I just started, and I just started reading the pages. And I'll, man, I'll tell you guys, the more I read this book, the simpler it gets. I, I hear people say, I just, I can't read my Bible. The Bible's so confusing, that's why I don't read it. No, it's confusing because you don't read it. That's why it's confusing. Just read it and it will become less confusing. And I'll tell you, the more I read this book, the more I meet this man Jesus. And the more I meet this man Jesus, the more I want to read this book. This book is evidence that Jesus is alive. If you're a follower of Jesus, your life is evidence that Jesus is alive. I like what John says in John 7, verse 17. It's Jesus speaking. It says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teachings come from God or whether I speak on my own. So what's John saying there? You want to know if this thing is true? Follow Jesus. And there will be evidence that it's true. When you decide to follow Jesus, there's evidence in your life that the promises of God are true. That when Jesus says he will provide for you, there's evidence that he will provide for you. When Jesus promises that he will protect you, there's evidence that he will protect you. If you're a follower of Jesus and you do an honest reflection of your life, there's evidence. Man, I tell you guys, my life, it just, again, I started following Jesus about 18 years ago. I've been a Christian my whole life, and I really started following Jesus about 18 years ago. And uh, my life, it just doesn't make sense outside. I can't, there's things in my life that I can't explain if Jesus isn't true, if he's not real. If Jesus isn't who he said he is, and if he didn't do what he said he did, my life doesn't make sense. And, I, and I, this isn't about me. I think that if you're a follower of Jesus and you do an honest assessment of your life, you'll find the same thing to be true. There's things about your life that simply don't— if, you're, if you just do an honest assessment of your life, 
There's things that just don't make sense outside of Jesus. And I know for me, in times of doubt, that is so helpful. Because if I'm honest, I have times where I doubt. I have times when I think, I just, man, this is so, I don't, I don't know. I don't, this is kind of weird. It's kind of strange. And yet I look at my life, and no, there's evidence. There's, I can't comprehend it, but there's evidence that it's true. I think the church is meant to be evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. I think the existence of the church in the world is meant to be evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But I want to submit to you that there is evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, if you want to believe it. And so what do we do with this evidence? How do we What do we do with these doubts? I think there's a couple of different ways that we can doubt when presented with the evidence. It says in in Luke chapter 24 here that the, the disciples, because of joy and amazement, they doubted. What does that mean? Because of, here's an example for you. I, a couple weeks ago, I ran a race, a 5K. I'm a aspiring runner, and I I had this goal, this time goal that I wanted to meet uh, in this race. And so I trained hard for, for months, trained hard for this thing. And race day came, and man, I ran the fast, literally the fastest I've ever run in my life. Beat my time goal, super excited. I look at the results. The winner of that race beat me by a full five minutes. <laughs> That's unbelievable to me. I literally, like, I cannot imagine running 3.1 miles in 14 minutes. Like, I cannot imagine that. That is unbelievable to me. But I believe it. Why? Because there's evidence. There's, like, I can't comprehend. Like, I literally, walk as genes do not allow you to run a mile in less than five minutes. It just doesn't work. But there's evidence. And what does that do? It causes amazement in me. It causes awe, and it's inspiring to me. I think that's one way we, what we can do with these doubts is you think about the resurrection. You think that Jesus would actually love somebody like me, that Jesus would actually give up. The Son of God, fully God, fully man, would give up his life. for son. He would pay my debt. He would take on the wrath of God in my place. I can't comprehend that. I can't comprehend the goodness of that. But I believe it. Does that make sense? Where when you start to believe, when you start to believe in amazement, there's still room for this. I can't comprehend it, but I know it. But I think some people doubt out of skepticism. They doubt simply to justify their unbelief. And you'll hear arguments like, well, I can't believe in a book that has so many contradictions. You know, I've had a lot of people, we because of our ministry and the people we interact with, I've had a lot of people that will tell me that. I can't believe a book that has so many contradictions. When somebody presents you with that argument, here's a, here's a good question for them. Really, tell me, which contradiction are you talking about? I have never had somebody be able to answer that question for me. No, I'm serious. I never have. Because we're told that this book has lots of contradictions. Right? And then people believe that. They're like, oh, I can't believe it. But they've never searched the evidence for themselves. Because there's certain people that just don't want to believe. 
They just choose to not believe. And to be honest with you, I, I don't know what to say to that person. I wish I had a good response to that person. I will pray for that person that, as Jesus did with his disciples, that he would open their understanding. But I don't know what to tell the person that simply doesn't want to believe. But I want to tell you, if you're here this morning and you want to believe, the evidence is there. And if you find yourself this morning in that place where you've got these doubts, but you live in a culture where it's shameful to have those doubts, you've got these questions, but you're afraid to ask those questions because maybe God will be upset with you and other people will look down on you, I want to say ask the questions. Wrestle with those doubts. Not to justify unbelief, but to arrive at truth. Because the the Jesus that I read about in this story is a Jesus who is patient and gracious with those doubts. Who wants you to believe. And that when you wrestle with those, he will meet you in that place and he will show you. He will say, come and touch. Come and see. Come and eat with me. And you will know that I'm alive. We get a couple of examples of this in Scripture. You get the, the father whose uh, child is sick and comes to Jesus and says, Can you heal uh, my child? And, and Jesus says, Just believe and it will be done for you. And the man's response is, I, I believe Jesus helped my unbelief. I think that's a good prayer. I pray that prayer often. God, I, I believe, I do, I, I believe, but there's just these, I, don't, I can't comprehend it, so God, would you help my unbelief? I think that's a good prayer, and I think it's okay to pray that prayer as long as we're not on the side of the Pharisees who are rooted in skepticism, who don't want to believe, so they're demanding a sign simply to justify their unbelief. God is okay with you. If you're here this morning and you find these doubts creeping in, welcome to the followers of Jesus. And I want to tell you, wrestle with those. Ask those questions. Look for the evidence and you'll meet a Jesus who will meet you in that place. The other thing I love about the end of Luke's gospel is he doesn't end it with simply addressing the belief system of the disciples. Because I think this is another way that we err in our Christian faith is we think that following Jesus is all about the belief system, right? It's all about having the right beliefs. And that's that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, Jesus doesn't just address their belief system, but what does he do? He says, you will be my witnesses. He says, even in the midst of these doubts, I've got a mission for you. My mission here on earth is completed. It's finished, but it's continuing with you. And one of the beautiful things about Luke's gospel is he's got a second gospel, right? We have second Luke in our Bibles. Do you guys know that? It's called the book of Acts. Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. And he unpacks this a little bit more in Acts chapter 1. I want to read this uh, for a moment. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Began to do and to teach. Until the day he was taken up into heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. There it is again. He gave verifiable evidence that he was alive. 
He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Again, I think that speaks to the grace of God. He doesn't do it just once and say now he demands belief, but he spends 40 days with these guys, giving them evidence. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my fa- that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they met together, and they asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I love this because they still don't get it, right? Like they still don't get it, and I love it because Jesus is still gracious with them. He just, he doesn't rebuke him. He just says, you know what, guys? That's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the dates or the times that my father is set by his own authority. Instead, he sends him out on mission, right? He says, don't worry about that. I've got a job for you to do. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of of the earth. One of the questions I like to ask about resurrection is so what? Now so what our salvation is a big so what. But what I mean by that is what what else? What what's the result? What's the purpose of resurrection? What's the purpose of the ascension? And I think Jesus tells us here it's mission. That as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple, that we're on mission with Jesus. That if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your uncertainties, Jesus has a mission for you. And what is that mission? What's the mission? What's to witness, right? Isn't that what Jesus says here? To witness. To witness. What does that mean? Witness. Well, to witness about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. In other words, to witness about the kingdom of heaven. Now, we have to ask the question briefly, what does it mean to witness? What does that mean, right? What does Jesus mean by witness? And I think, again, when you use Jesus as the example, as a follower of Jesus, if we're to imitate Jesus, then I think witnessing has two key components. And this is the language that people like to put to it. Witnessing in word and in deed, What do I mean by that in word? I mean evangelism. I think evangelism is one of the key roles of the church today. To go out and tell people about this good news. To actually open our mouths and tell people around us about the good news of Jesus. Wherever God has you right now, he's got you in that place to witness. To tell people about Jesus. There's people in your workplace that are watching how you work and they're wondering why your life is different and they're waiting for you to tell them about this man, Jesus. Man, we've got to open our mouths and tell people about Jesus. But there's this other piece that you see Jesus doing, the deed or the works, going around and healing people and taking care of people and spending time with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and bringing justice to the oppressed. And I think as a church, and when I mean, here's what I mean by church. People often ask that, what do you mean by church? When I talk about church, I mean the global body of believers, followers of Jesus. I also mean the local congregation. I think biblically, those two are inseparably linked. 
That's what I mean by the church. I mean both. And I think the church is called and anointed by Jesus to witness in both word and in deed. And I think when you begin to separate those two, you begin to move away from the mission of God. And I think we tend to separate those two. And we either have evangelism, and it's all about the word. It's all about getting people saved. It's all about preaching and telling the truth, and we don't care for people. And I think that's pretty similar to what James talks about, right? This faith without works is dead. I think that's dead works. When we don't have, ev- we don't have evidence to go along with that. Now on the flip side of that, I think that what I have seen in we do a lot of urban ministry, and what I've seen is some encouraging trends in the church. But my fear is that we've come out of this place in the church of heavy evangelism, where it's all about getting people saved, and we've recognized, no, we've got to take care of people. And I fear that the pendulum is swinging to the other side, where it's all about just doing the stuff. It's all about just doing the stuff. And I'll hear people say, well, Jesus always fed people before he taught them. It's just not actually true. It just doesn't actually hold up to the biblical story. People will say, well, people won't hear you on an empty stomach. It's not actually true because I could tell you lots of stories of people that have. First-hand accounts of people. I could tell you of young men from my neighborhood that have gotten saved in this church in the midst of incredible turmoil. See, if all we're doing is finding housing for people, if all we're doing is finding jobs for people, if all we're doing is taking care of uh, education uh, and food, if that's all we're doing, I want to submit to you that we're not actually releasing the prisoners, that we're not actually helping the blind see, that we're not actually releasing the oppressed, I would submit to you that if all we're doing is taking care of physical circumstances, all we're doing is making people more comfortable in their bondage. If all we're doing is taking care of physical circumstances, all we're doing is continuing to lead the blind down a road to destruction. And I want to say, friends, that's not the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus is both. It's the word and the deed. And I believe this is the calling of the church. This is why I love this church. This is why I love Crossroads Bible Church. Because not only is it a a church that is committed to the word of God, but it's a a church that is committed to the streets. And And a church that is committed to the west side of Grand Rapids. One of my, one of the things I, um, well, Rod won't do it, so I'll do it. Uh, I tell this guy all the time, you got to tell people about what you're doing in this neighborhood because this church is so active in the neighborhood and a lot of people don't know it. Right now we're having conversations, strategic conversations about employment. We're having strategic conversations about how this church can address housing, which is an absolute crisis in the west side right now. We're having those conversations in this church. This church has built an incredible reputation at Stocking Elementary, serving some of the most uh, marginalized in our city. This church is doing it. That's why I love being a part of this church. 
But I want to say it's not limited to the local congregation. This is the calling of every follower of Jesus, that your life is called on mission with Jesus. That when you leave this place, you're called to be on mission with Jesus, to witness about the resurrection of Jesus. And we've got this promise here in Scripture where Jesus himself says to his disciples that when you go, I'm going to send the promise of the Father or the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to start a food fight with this one. Uh, But I think it is evidently clear that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in you. There's some question of like, well, when do you receive the Holy Spirit? Do you receive it when you're saved or do you receive the Holy Spirit? At a second time, I think the Bible is abundantly clear that the moment you follow, decide to follow Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you as evidence to your faith. And you will never have more of the Holy Spirit in you than you have right now. You will never need more of the Holy Spirit in you than you have right now. Right now, you have power to witness in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your uncertainties, in the midst of anything that's going on in your life, you have power. This is, friends, why the church plays an irreplaceable, has an irreplaceable function in neighborhoods like mine. Because we have power that the local school does not have. We have power that the neighborhood associations do not have. We have the power of the Holy Spirit, which has the power to transform a human heart, which is why the church must take a central role in the revitalization of places like the West Side. And that is our greatest prayer right now at the Bridge Street House of Prayer, is that the church would take their rightful place in a, a central location in caring for our neighbors and witnessing, because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not to diminish the school systems. That's not to diminish the neighbor. I'm a board, I'm a board member in our local neighborhood association. We run a tutoring program with Westwood Middle School. We're addressing housing and education. We're doing all of that. I'm just saying that we, as followers of Jesus, have power that the world does not have. And as followers of Jesus, this is our calling to go out in, in that power to witness about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thanks for this uh, promise that you have given us, this promise.